Welcome back to another episode of the Magnus and Marcus Show. Here, as always, Marcus. with John Marcus. How are you doing, John? Doing great. How are you doing, Steve? Oh, doing good. Just in between travels in the summer. Can't, can't ask for much more. So, Yes, the term summer vacation does not really apply to track and cross-country coaches. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, never ends. I'll consider this long phone call a break from making other long phone calls called recruiting calls. There you go. So, <laughs> so good stuff. So, um, in talking before this, we decided to focus on the topic that I think is uh, paramount in our sport and almost almost like a virus of ever-increasing, and that's uh, increasing things for the sake of increasing things. And, and John, you kind of brought the point up, so I'll let you start and explain it a little bit. Yeah, I mean, Steve and I were chatting offline here, and we... We just were relating different experiences and recent conversations we had with either athletes or coaches, and it kind of seems, you know, that there's this trapping of a arms race of sorts to do more and do more because, well, frankly, you don't know what else to do, so you might as well just do more of what you've been doing because it's been successful. And you know, I think there's a lot of truth to that up until a point, and then you start to see this plateau effect or diminished returns. And I feel like it's really important we break down this barrier because we operate so much in sport, it seems like, with this linear growth mindset where you should get better every year. And if you're not getting better every year, if you're not PRing, if you're not running faster, if you're not running more miles, if you're not lifting more weight, if you're not more, 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 that somehow means you're not progressing or you're not improving, which, you know, on a superficial level, is exactly agreed, 100. percent You can you can see that and you know really feel insecure about that. But I think what we were, Steve and I are trying to do is a deep dive here and really look at what's happening, kind of more on the cellular level, more on the psychological level, and then more on the the, the global level of an athlete's career. Yeah, I couldn't have uh, couldn't have said it better. You know. Um... One of the things that, that comes to mind when uh, when you brought up that kind of linear growth in terms of performance is, is we have this expectation that from when we start to when we finish, that growth is going to be on this linear curve, right, or linear line. And a, a couple years ago, I think two years ago, what I did is I took, God, I think it was like the top, top 75... Um, women 5k runners in the, in the world so through the last probably 15 years and I looked at I tracked their performance improvement marks um, each year in their season best over time and what I did was looked at and plotted how they improved when they hit certain barrier or breakthroughs when they hit um, hit their lifetime PR and it was really interesting because what happened was you'd have these kind of, uh, you know, breakthrough, then a regression to the mean, meaning fall back a couple seconds, and then go back up to norm, and then kind of have this unstable platform, um, mm-hmm. which it isn't expected. And the, the breakthrough, if I remember on correct, is like once they hit their PR, it was something like an average of, you know, 18 to 20 second PR in a 5k which is which, wow, is, yeah. which, which is a pretty big jump so I 
if I remember correctly, it was like looking at athletes who had like 15, 15 to 15, 20 PRs. And then all of a sudden the next year they jumped down to, you know, right under 15 or right at 15. Hit that that year and then went back to 15, 10, 15, 15 before finding their way back down. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the norm of how how it happened across like these elite athletes. And this was with taking out all the drug athletes in some select countries and stuff like that. So, um, so it was ra- it was a nice lesson to me that was like, oh wow, like progression doesn't occur in this like nice little let's get better every year and be happy about it model. Yeah, I think you know that especially at the elite level and even the higher levels of high school or the higher levels of college, um, you know, it, it's about more than anything being consistent. Um, and, you know, we, we talk about, you know, increasing training loads, increasing, you know, the stress, bo- stress response stimulus and adaptation. But also, too, you know, one of the main things that we talk about a lot on this podcast is the power of consistency and how consistency year in and year out can really mitigate a lot of potential losses and then also, you know, allow for a lot of improvements. And, you know, but as you move forward from that realm of consistency, there is a degree of variance as well that comes up as an athlete ages or as an athlete encounters different setbacks or different emotional um, situations or things of that nature that the coach has to be sensitive to as well. So we can't just continue to say, hey, last week you ran 80 miles a week. Okay, this week we're just going to bump it up you know, to 85, and the next week we're going to bump it up to 90, and we're just going to keep bumping you up by 5 miles a week because that's a safe standard deviation to get you up to 100 miles a week, and then you're just going to plateau at 100 miles a week and we'll add all these types of things to it. I was telling um, an athlete I was talking to today, I said, you know, coaches, we have a lot of confidence in things. There's a lot of literature, scientific or studies or literature on it because if there's a lot of validation that this works, then we're going to go with what works because we just, you know, it's we don't want to have a guinea pig or, you know, test and have a test go wrong because we, we had a hunch about something or some training. But at the same time, too, it's a big limitation because, you know, then everyone's just doing all this aerobic training in distance running world and like that's it that's all we're going to do is just we're going to run a lot and oh you just need to do core or you don't need to do anything else and it's like well no that's very very important that you need to work the whole you know all the systems in some type of um proportion whether it be aerobic anaerobic resistance year round the fact that you have to stop doing something is really counterintuitive to how we evolved and who we are as human beings i mean my argument to everyone is like, oh, well, so when you're peaking, you're going to stop doing your lifting or stop doing some speed work or stop doing this. And it's like, so you're also going to stop breathing and you're going to stop eating because, you know, you don't want to do that year round. And it's like, no, no, the, some stuff you need to do year round to, you know, be able to see improvement. Now, how you do that is the guessing game or like, rather than guessing it is the art of coaching, so to speak. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good point. I mean, whenever I present at conferences, since that's on my mind, I always like to show this one slide where it's a picture of my notebook where I just, I wrote down every single way that I could manipulate a workout to add in extra stress. Because 
Um, I think, as you pointed out, we get into this mindset of like, oh, 80 miles a week, we're going to do 85 the next week. Or we did a five-mile tempo, we're going to do a six-mile tempo. Or we did, you know, 16-mile long run, we're going to do 18 the next week. And it's this add more, add add volume to it. Um, and what I did, what I like to show is this this page in my notebook where I wrote down probably 25 different things where it's just, all right, you know, maybe we can adjust the rest of this workout or add a strength component in terms of exercise we're doing or add a psychological constraint by taking watches away or making them focus on something else or adding a place or space constraint, meaning instead of doing this in lane one, now let's do it in lane six or seven where you don't have splits or don't have that comfortable feeling or rhythm or add some surges to it but whatever it is you're looking at um manipulating the constraint in a in a different way and i think as coaches we get into this nice little habit of just saying hey this is this is how we do it we add to it and let's stay there when there's so many other viable options to to add a stressor to it yeah i think you know the main thing is with you know looking at how you create variables within a workout or within a training plan or training progression is you always have to see what the athlete is lacking that's where the necessity for variables and the necessity of stimulus comes into play you know you never just want to completely scrap what the athlete's strong at or what their foundational work that they really enjoy is doing but also to complement that strength with addressing that weakness so that's where Again, you do like what I like to do a lot is have a workout with, say, a 10k rider who just loves his anaerobic monster or aerobic monster, just can run, repeat, threshold reps all day, but throw in somewhere in there, maybe at the end, maybe kind of two thirds of the way through a rep, at the end of the session, what have you, some something that's going to challenge them in a unique way that they're not that gets them outside their comfort zone. Because we always have to remember that the number one rule of growth is that it happens when you are challenged slightly beyond your comfort zone. And, you know, if you don't do that regularly, you don't get adaptation. And it doesn't matter whatever it is in life. It could be physiological, psychological, environmental. You have to seek those small challenges outside your comfort zone. When you look, it's a basic fundamental principle of growth for human beings. Look at babies. Babies are always pressing a little bit beyond their comfort zone, whether it's trying to put words together say a word get up from a crawl to a walk position every day they are just living athletes i was recently at, uh you know at the uh, family function this last weekend um nephews he's learn. he's walking he's learning to talk he's learning to say bye-bye hello he's learning to put words together identify things you know but i mean this he's basically an athlete except he's just a, a cognitive as well as physiological athlete in motion. So I think if we look back to what babies are doing, I mean, that's where we all came from, and that's some foundational um, uh, synergy we have. But yet, we sometimes we get kind of bogged down with this idea of, okay, more, 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 because we just don't know what else to do. I mean, I'm not sitting there and telling my nephew Atticus, hey, Atticus, okay, you said, you know, dad had twice, Okay, this next time you're going to say data five times in a row, and that repetition is going to get you better. I mean, all repetition really does on a cognitive level 
you know, superficial level is just breed belief. It just makes you believe you can do something. We're actually very quick at adapting to things given just a few rep cycles. I think there's this great TED talk, you know, called learning what happens to learning in the first hours. So we have the 10,000 hour rule, right, of mastery that's been purported to be out there um, from the, uh, the Florida State analysis and popularized Gladwell. But then if you look at this TED talk, it's like you can learn a lot in the first 20 hours. And that's, that's where a lot of key learning happens is in the first 20 hours that you're doing something. And it's really vital that that first 20 hours is exploratory, is very learned by doing. You make a lot of errors, but you learn quickly. And that allows you then to get that growth that you want. And same thing when we do something in training. You want to do something a little bit different, a little bit beyond an athlete's comfort zone, you know, consistently just to expose them to that. Because as you're saying about for failure, by saying, oh, we're always going to do workouts in your comfort zone or always do workouts when you're capable of hitting. And then you put them in a psychological situation like trying to make finals for, you know, have a prelim that's in a really good prelim with a lot of good people. Well, they've never beat you know, person A, B, C, and only top two go to finals, how are they going to emotionally, psychologically adapt to doing something outside their comfort zone if they've never been challenged or pushed in practice to do so? So again, it's kind of this 360-degree point of view, like you have to have this variance in you know, your workout and just saying, I did more miles, more reps at more faster than I did last year means I'm in better shape. The answer is a yes and a no, you know, chicken and egg type thing. Yeah, no, that's that's a great point. I think, I think he brought up a lot of points that is uh, that were brought up in a book. I think you recommended to me called "Make It Stick," which has has made the rounds now. But mm-hmm. you know, in that book, they talk about the exact thing that you talked about is like repetition, like repeating something over and over. So let's say we're studying for an exam or studying for a test, like just reading your notes over and over, reading a section over and over gives you this false sense of security um, where you think you're understanding it better because it's got a higher degree of familiarity, but then when they actually test you on it, um, you <laughs> you don't perform as well as if, if you, you know, read it, mm-hmm. test, you know, took a quiz on it or, you know, forgot about it for a little bit and then challenged yourself to remember stuff. So it's, it's that familiarity, um, that repetition doesn't work in the same way that we think it think it does. So I think you're you're on on the right track here. Is that 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 adding a stressor can be in multiple different directions, but the key there is like slightly taking you beyond beyond uh, your comfort zone. You know, I'm going to mention another book which I texted you to as a recommendation because I think it's really good. I'm only oh, half, actually, yeah, I picked through. it up today. So, yeah. <laughs> nice. Called mm-hmm. uh, The Upside of Stress by uh, Kelly McGonigal. And, and in that book, her thesis is essentially that, that while well, stress is labeled a very bad thing, the opposite is the true, is, is the opposite is right, is that stress is a good thing because it's something to adapt to. And if we adapt to stressor, we grow. Right, and in that in that book, she makes this, or she points out a couple studies where it looks at um, degree of fulfillment in life and happiness in life. And somewhat ironically, the more stressful people report their life to be, the more f- fulfillment they report their life to have too. And that the the least uh, the lowest stressed people, which 
you know, intuitively we would, th- we would think, oh man, you've got no stress in life. It must be great. But they have the least fulfilling life and then in turn the, the least happy life. And there's a bunch, bunch of other examples, but I think that gets to the point on kind of a global view is that our bodies need to be stressed. Like that's the bottom line as they need to be stressed. So we have to challenge just like you pointed out in the, um, as a kid, when, as a baby, when you're developing, like they're constantly exploring and challenging. Training should be the same type of exploration and challenge. Like we should constantly be explorers looking for a new route um, to try and get to some adaptation in a different way versus keep doing the same thing and saying, hey, you know, last, last time we did eight 400s, let's do nine 400s. Yeah. Or last time we did eight 400s at 60, now we're doing eight 400s at 58. Exactly. You know. <laughs> I think too, like, Good training also has a sense of um, creativity behind it. I mean, me kind of coming more from the canvas and brushstroke world here, uh, more the craftsmanship type world, uh, I think that keeps people's interests engaged. I mean, I really, I look back at what the previous training was from previous years for athletes or teams I work with, and I mean, honest to God, we never do the same exact workout at the same time every year for an athlete I have a long-term relationship with. It's, you know, it's good to know, but that athlete's always shifting and changing and what's important to them on a physiological and psychological level is different every year, even though they might be building up for the same 10K cross-country peak that they did the previous year. We just, you know, we're not going to say, hey, we did this last year and it worked, so we're going to do it again. And while you're older and you, you, you're a little bit better now because you ran some good PRs and track, so now just do the workout faster. It's like, no, we, we really are trying to understand what the end game is for that athlete for that championship season and just where coupled with the other stimulus, whether we're adding some extra strength and conditioning work in there or we've been upping the long run stimulus or they, maybe they you know are working crazy hours on top of whatever else and they're not getting enough sleep like those subtleties actually have a profound impact i mean another book that i just blitzed through this weekend that i picked up off of sheer randomness off the bookshelf in the bookstore was what makes olga run i mean without a doubt <laughs> i texted steve and i said it's fascinating and it's so concise because it puts a lot of what steve and i talk about you know just in um language and in a a frame of reference that's familiar to us with a, from a master's track athlete, a 90, um, a 90 to 95 year old master's track athlete as she kind of goes through a litany of tests and psychological examinations and the author just does a deep dive and really gets to know her. And for me being a track nerd, it, you know, it just spoke my language. So it all instantly clicked, but it talks so much on a more of a 35,000 foot view scale of, um, like Steve said, like we were, we're meant to be movers. We're meant to be stressed. We're meant to do a lot of things up until the day we, you know, kick the bucket. It's not this paradigm of all the old folks going the old folks home and just sit in front of the TV and just count your days until you know death's hand comes on you. That's not how we evolve. It's not where we're meant to be, and it's an insult actually to who we are as human beings. Same thing then applies to. To life, this idea that we're prescribing stress intervals, and that's really what we're doing in workout bouts, whether it's on the track or in the weight room or wherever else. You know, we're giving people prescriptions of stress, 
and saying, this prescription of stress is going to be the magic prescription that's going to get you fitter. And, it, you know, and Laga coaches have a really, you know, intimate understanding of that. And yes, 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 it, it is true. But at the same time, too, what I would love to see in our lifetime is kind of some documented study where it's like, okay, prescription of stress and also prescription of... So, like, what I'd like to see in our lifetime is a study on the prescription of stress doled out to an athlete, but also to the psychological confidence or slash motivation in that prescription of stress or that belief, so to speak, in that workout or that workout regime and see if there's any correlation there between the two. So, like, if the more you believe in a workout or a workout pattern and the more you do it, the better you get or the less you believe in it, you know, less less you're willing to do it, you know, the less better you get. I, I believe they're like really intimately intertwined and you can't have one without the other. So if you don't have that, you know, belief, so to speak, in your repetitions, maybe those repetitions aren't going to get you any better. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I think you ask any coach in the country and they'd, they'd say, yep, if you uh, buy into the system and believe it's going to get you better, um, I think it'd be a fascinating study because I think sometimes as coaches we get caught up into the physiological uh, demands and looking for that perfect workout when a lot of times it's the the uh, psychological commitment and belief and motivation that that make the difference right right well it's easy because you can track it and we are yep we're human beings of lists like I was reading um I'll just finish the rise the book the rise by I believe Sarah Lewis and in it, there's a section, it's just about how lists rule the world. And lists, you know, you have a list, you get it done, you get that dopamine hit by checking things off your list. If you list things out, people understand, you know, look at track results. There's just, you know, first to 20th place. It's a list of results. I mean, it just makes it really understandable for us. But this is the reality that we're living in is I think we're pushing, <clears throat> you know, to the maximum of what's relatably trackable. And Steve and I are in this dialogue about the conference he just got back from recently. And he said, man, there's a lot of gadgets and gizmos and things they track from these other um, sports. And then, you know, my retort was, well, how much of it really is relatable and really is of value? Like, we can track a whole lot of things. We can make lists and, you know, and record what this happened. But if we're not really recording some, you know, very basic or fun- fundamental key performance indicators, then kind of all your due diligence here of tracking things is for naught. I mean, it's, you know, you talk to some coaches, swear by heart rate monitors. Oh my God, we need heart rate monitors or else we can't train. Other coaches say, no, nah, we'll just go by feel. It's okay. I mean, you know, either way works very, very well. Some coaches say, oh, well, we got to test blood lactate right away. We got to, you know, just have that be a regular test. Other coaches say, no, we'll just we'll figure it out by how the athlete's feeling based on when they do a tempo run. You know, so it's a, it's a matter of how you track and what you track and what's important. I think that really um, is the proof of the pudding of your, you know, coaching sauce. And so and that's the thing every coach has to really figure out is what is really important for them to track. Like myself, I don't track mileage. My athletes, like I had an athlete text me today, says, hey coach, how much mileage should I be running in the summer? I go, well, how much you run last week? He's like, 88.5. And this kid's, you know, he's that type of kid. 88.5 on the nose. I'm like, all right. I said, you know, how are you feeling? 
feeling great. How many weeks have you been running around about that? He goes, a couple weeks. It's been feeling awesome. I said, okay, good. Just have it be in a plus or minus 10-mile variance pretty much every week. If you're feeling kind of tired, take a down week, take a day off. And maybe it's a 20-mile you know, negative, but it's not that big a deal. And, I mean, it's, you know, I know some coaches just be like, what? You don't track mileage? That's like the most important thing to know is how many miles a week someone's running, da 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 you know, and to me, it's more the daily or weekly dialogue with an athlete about how the, then based on how they're feeling, then we go back and then we look at what they did, not just the last week, but what they did the last month in terms of work volume, work intensity, stress of life, stress of job, stress of class, you know, just lack of sleep, you know, those things. So I think it's a matter of how you KPIs that really matter to you or how you don't use them. Yeah, I, I mean, I've always made the argument that if we can measure something, we're going to assign importance to it, even if it's important or not. So if we can measure something, we just fall in love with it. And you see this all the time in the world of sports science. So, for example, I always like to use the example of VO2 max as it was one of the first things that we could measure. So a whole scientific field of physiology and cardiovascular fitness and fatigue developed around this ability to measure VO2 max. And that was what our worldview was until, you know, a couple of years ago when, when things became started to change. So if we, if we can measure it, we like to assign importance. And, and one, of the, uh, one of the conference presenters, Michael Reagan, who uh, works with uh, Aussie Rules Football, put up a great quote, and he said, if you can't make a decision on your output, don't make the output. And the, po- and the point was exactly what you said, is like, we can track all these things, but if they're not going to make, they're not going to be decision makers, then what is the point, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, I think, you know, just piggybacking on that is this idea that, you know, we need to have this linear growth pattern. And if you don't have it, people get really, really persnickety. Kind of going back full circle here to what Steve had talked about initially about the 5K results is, um, you know, breakthroughs happen at kind of magical times. Like any athlete I've really talked to, like Alan Webb, for example, when he, you know, broke the American record in the mile, um, you know, even guys like Chris Linsky, when he broke the American record in the 10K. They weren't necessarily training, you know, two, three months in advance and being and say, okay, we're, we're doing this. We're, we're training for this. It just kind of all came together really rapidly and at the last moment. And they just said, hey, there might be a shot. I might be able to do this. Okay, let's, let's go race. And, you know, it, it's not that they weren't working hard and putting in a lot of miles or doing a lot of lifting or all of a sudden Alan was like max squatting more than he ever squatted before or he's running you know, lots of reps faster than ever ran before. I mean, you have to understand there is a certain limitations on how fast and hard the body go. And the the thing that happened, though, is just this perfect storm of variance where everything was just kind of in balance. The, you know, stress and re- stress response adaptation, adaptation was in balance. The supercompensation cycle was in balance. Sleep was good. Food was good. Overall worldview was good. You know, all these good things 
just kind of came to a head, and they had these bravo performances that they've been themselves unable to replicate, you know, for the rest of their careers. And it kind of weighs on them psychologically because, like, how do I make that happen again? How do I make that happen again? And as friends, I'm just like, guys, you got to understand, like, you had a very rare moment, like a comet, that most stars don't really get in our lifetime. Like, you did something incredible that, and you're the first one to do it, and you're the first one to do it and shine that brightly. Like, you just, you, you can't, you, you can't put it down about exactly the timing of when, you know, a beautiful comet is going to explode and shoot through the stars. Same thing here. It's, it's like, you know, if you start just going in that default model of more, 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 then you start to, like, trickle down in the CrossFit world where we're just going to go to max intensity. Yeah, I think you make a good point. I mean, with athletes like that, when they have that big breakthrough, I think you're getting to the point where you're, you're kind of like chasing unicorns. You're chasing something magical, some magical set of circumstances that, you know, just happen to occur that, that can't be forced to be replicated. And you take yourself down a, a pretty dark path if you're always trying to find that magic again. I mean, I, I can somewhat, re- somewhat relate when I ran, you know, a 401 mile in, in high school. I was spent a while trying to chase that feeling again and it can uh drive you nuts um to a degree but you know one of the things that i've noticed kind of relating to that feeling is like it's like you said and in in coaching when i know i'm doing a good job it's almost like i'm in this like flow state like things are just clicking along i'm not i don't really have to do any deep analysis it's it's just like all right you did this Next, we're going to go this way, and it's going to work. And then we're going to go this way, and it's going to work. And it, you're just clicking, and it's just flowing along. And there's, it's almost like instead of having this conscious thought process of deep thoughts going on, it's just this automatic subconscious decisions that are just working and going along. So, you know, from a coaching standpoint, I think sometimes we inadvertently take us away from that that artistic feeling of painting that picture when we when we say stop wait how many miles were this week how much of those miles were at this pace how much was at this pace and we get this deep analytical side which is good at some points but it takes us away from that artistic flow of painting that picture yeah it's definitely a balance it's like you need to be able to see the grid if you're painting a picture but yet you don't want the final portrait to show the grid lines so that's, I think that's the innate challenge of the art of coaching is figuring that out. Now, you know, I encourage everybody kind of listening to Steve and I discuss this is go back, you know, in your coaching practice and look at where you, you know, are just kind of stuck in root linear um, progression mode where you're like, oh, well, with this athlete, with freshmen, we run 40 miles a week, no more. With sophomores, we run... 50 miles a week with juniors we run 60 miles a week you know those are good rules of thumb i think to like you know ensure the integrity of not getting athletes injured but at the same time too you know if you can find a way to create some variance and give a little bit of ownership to your athlete to say well look here's the goal like i tell like my athletes all the time like for summer training the goal is to run as much as you can possibly run while being able to run injury and pain free the next day you know, and just keep that going for the whole summer. Now, some days that means you're going to run two hours if it's a long run. Some days that means you're going to take a day off because you're kind of a little bit banged up or you stayed up late, uh, you know, doing a cross-country road trip or something. You know, so I think 
those are those conversations need to happen with an athlete and a coach so the athlete fundamentally understands these these quote-unquote rules hard and fast rules and why you prescribe them in the past especially as they mature now you know again i'm not advocating freshmen in high school or first-time athletes or runners or people you're working with to let them just feel their way through it no you, you got to have a little foundational strength behind yourself again you know we're talking about kind of more your calculus type um students you know people who have a firm grasp of algebra you know trigonometry geometry pre-calculus they can kind of explore a little bit more but if you're still trying to teach someone the bare basics about what a right angle is or what have you using that metaphor you know you, you want to be a little bit a little bit more cautious with that uh with the degree of autonomy and independence you give them yeah exactly i i call that mode that you described like the default workout mode right it's when you stop thinking about what you're doing to a degree and you just say oh like we've done this now we do this like freshman comes in he runs this mount right so it's like that default workout when you just kind of it don't process it it just becomes a default answer right and I, we all fall into those traps right we all fall into those modes and like what i've tried to do is is two things first <laughs> surround myself with people who will catch me and call me on those things so for instance my my athletes will now or my uh, grad assistants have been really good at that at that stuff to say hey like why are we doing this um this seems like you're just kind of falling into doing this because, uh, you know, this is what we do. So having someone to catch you. And then the other thing is if you notice it yourself as one of the ways to get out of it, I like to, to use what, what's called first principle reasoning, which um, is basically br- I, I like to break it down to its simplest component, like break it down as simple as I can to just get to what what am I trying to do, what am I trying to get at and then try and build it back up from there and see if I can get to a different answer if that makes sense yeah I mean it's all different strategies aimed at the end same end game which is get the athletes you're working with to be the best athletes they can be whether that's a faster athlete a stronger athlete you know a more engaged athlete a more competitive athlete I mean that's the end game here and that's why Steve and I are just kind of bringing this up for food for thought of hey really rethink what your training patterns or training plans look like and do they have a good degree of variance um, and natural variance built in them or are they kind of stuck in some root pattern of we'll do the same thing every year because that's the thing that's worked every year and why deviate from what's worked in the past and I think you know you just want to ensure that you're giving the most you can give to each athlete you work with for the period that you're working with yeah, that exactly. I mean, I th- I think we'll we'll leave it at that and sum it up with with that is it's that natural variance. I think if you you know if you read some of the books we talked about, or even go back to Taleb's Anti Fragile, it's that natural variance that that kind of has to occur for us to adapt. So you know, it, it, it's getting out of that that kind of uh, cookie cutter pattern of saying of always doing the same thing and all of these following the same pattern and making sure that you're staying fresh, not for freshness sake, but to keep adapting and applying these natural stresses to keep the athlete developing in the direction that you want them to develop. 
Amen. Couldn't have said it any better myself, Steve-O. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, this has been another uh, another fun one. Not an hour plus one. So we'll we'll save our listeners from uh, hearing us ramble on for uh, a while and get back to that 30-minute zone or thereabouts. So uh, good chatting with you, John, as always. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Happy coaching. <laughs>